Investigations these days are full of documents, data, and computer programming. But that wasn't always the case. Before Excel, there were clunky programs like Lotus 123. And before journalists were equipped with laptops, some had to find computers big enough to handle their data. And sometimes that meant they were only available in the middle of the night. At the 2019 NICAR conference, data journalism pioneer James B. Steele spoke about his storied career. Jim and his reporting partner of more than 40 years, Donald Barlett, won two Pulitzer Prizes, six IRE awards, and dozens of other national prizes for their investigative work at organizations like the Philadelphia Inquirer and Vanity Fair. Remain curious. I think that's the strongest thing that you see in the very best journalists. They're curious about everything almost obsessively so. On this bonus episode, Jim looks back at the stories that defined his career and shares his advice for investigative reporters today. I'm Abby Avrigania, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. In 1972, Barlett and Steele were working at the Philadelphia Inquirer. An issue suddenly was consuming the city, and it had to do with violent crime. Many politicians were saying, um, these judges, they're letting everybody out on the street, they're committing new crimes. It's a terrible thing. We need to do something about it. We need tougher judges, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we were curious, what actually is happening in the court system? We looked initially to see if there were any documents, any statistics. Well, if there were any, they weren't sharing them with us. The reporters decided to analyze more than a 1,000 closed cases of violent crime. They focused on murder, rape, robbery, and assault, and designed a form to collect that data from each of the cases. We talked to a couple of guys, a couple of political pals who were running the closed case room and letting us sit in the corner of Philadelphia City Hall, began looking through these closed cases. As we began looking at these, we were more and more fascinated by them. The the murder cases were amazing. Some people would get light sentences for things that seemed heinous. Others would get um, heavy sentences for not such bad crimes. So the whole, we got more and more curious, but all of this was sort of anecdotal. Like, what's it all really amounting to? Barlett and Steele continued to research, collect data, and fill out the forms. Here was the stack getting higher and higher and higher of these forms. And we looked at each other and said, what in the world are we going to do now? Because it was way beyond, previously to this, where we'd had any kind of data component, uh, we were able to take a put it on a desk, and with a desktop calculator, calculate some of the issues we were dealing with. It was clumsy, and it took a little time, but you could do it. But this was way beyond this. I mean, each one of these forms, and by the time this hit us that we were really in deep, deep trouble, uh, each one of these forms had 40 to 50 bits of information on it. Everything from the defendant to the victim, the time of the crime, uh, the charges, the defense attorney, the prosecuting attorney, the police, was there prior record? I mean, you name it. Everything possible was on this. So it's a huge amount of information for each individual case. Then, Jim says, a savior appeared. It was Philip Meyer, a pioneer in using social science research methods in journalism. And we turned to Phil, told him what we had, and said, can you help? Well, Phil immediately felt he was in hog heaven. He'd never, seen, never heard of this much data that, that represented the tremendous possibilities for computerization. 
So when Phil saw this, he thought, wow, this is great. So Phil wrote a program. It's a very complicated process in those days to transfer from that program to an actual computer. But the last part of it were IBM cards. And I was telling somebody yesterday, <laughs> anybody young out there has no idea what these cards are, I don't think. And, and I said, if you want to know what they are, go to your local museum, find out where the Model T is. These, these digital cards are right next to the Model T exhibit. I mean, that's just how far back it goes. But anyway, clumsy. Uh, strange system. We did that. We ended up with 9,600 of these cards dealing with more than 1,000 cases of violent crime. Another problem ensues. The Philadelphia Inquirer's computer was not large enough to handle this database. So Phil looks around. Phil was in Washington, and uh, he calls one day. I got good news and bad news. I found a computer. It's not real expensive. The bad news is we can only have it from midnight to 5 a.m., Barlett and I and Phil worked the graveyard shift uh, in Bethesda, Maryland for several weeks, uh, cleaning the deck, running cross tabs, asking all kinds of questions. How does this white judge deal with cases of African-Americans and the, the reverse with African-American judges? How does this defense attorney handle his cases? How about this assistant district attorney? What are, what's his record? How about this judge? Is this judge as tough as some of the people on the street say he is, or is she not? Their work was the largest computer-assisted reporting project of its time, and it helped create a framework for future investigations. It was a tremendous uh, stimulus to us that showed us from then on uh, the tremendous potential that lay ahead by using computers. When it comes to finding story ideas, Jim's advice is simple. Always be curious. And it's so self-evident, but it's something we all have to tell ourselves all the time. Remain curious. I think that's the strongest thing that you see in the very best journalists. They're curious about everything, almost obsessively so. And so. so you just, you ask a question, you see something, you read something, you say, what is there to that? In the mid-2000s, the reporters investigated Monsanto's genetically modified seeds, and the idea for that story came from a piece of pop culture. One of our editors went to the movies one weekend, and at the time there was a very popular movie playing called Michael Clayton. The movie was about a corrupt chemical corporation and a lawsuit against the company that alleged its products were cancerous. So our editor came back and, and called us the next week and he said, I wonder what the real weed killer companies like, i.e. Monsanto. It's a simple question, just like that. The way we've always started every project is to read. Maybe start out even with secondary sources, just to see what's been done, just to kind of get a primer on it. And then you start going to what I would call the primary sources. In the case of Monsanto, after we saw some stories about this issue of these seeds getting into farm fields and so forth and causing all kinds of problems, then went to Monsanto's annual reports, 10K reports. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission keeps 10K reports by publicly traded companies. They contain information on profits, compensation for executives, subsidiaries, and more. Jim had a breakthrough when he was looking at a somewhat ignored part of those annual reports. One of the things that I still find people not paying enough attention to are the appendixes of both uh, annual reports, uh, congressional hearings. In the case of Monsanto, when you went to the back of it under that section called litigation, which every public company that files with the Securities and Exchange Commission will have a section called litigation. So you look at that and you see who's suing them. Well, in the case of Monsanto, it was like pages and pages 
of these lawsuits where they were basically suing farmers. Very few were suing in return. So systematically began looking at these cases. Jim also recommends another place to look for sources and story ideas, congressional hearings. It will lead you to sources. You look at the appendixes of a lot of these hearings where people haven't even appeared, but they've just sent in comments. I can't tell you over the years how many amazing things we've found buried on page like 99 of a, of a congressional hearing or something like that. So always do that. Steele embody one of IRE's favorite ideas, having a document state of mind. That's the concept that every story has a paper trail, and finding those documents can strengthen your reporting. But when Jim was a reporter in the 70s, documents were an underutilized reporting resource. Nobody told me about records. Nobody told me about documents. You wanted to find out something, you reach for a phone, you call that. It wasn't until later that the, the, the great power of these things became clear, and you could, you could pull things together that no source or even group of sources could tell you because the story was really bigger than one or two or three people. And even a lot of them didn't know the magnitude of it. The team used documents for their Pulitzer-winning investigation into the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Congress made a big show that year of repealing tax shelters in the Caribbean. But by staying up all night to read tax law, Jim found a new loophole. Well, in reading this bill, came to one section that said exception for this wonderful repeal just mentioned above. And it said paragraph 2, paragraph A, something like that, above, shall not apply to a company incorporated in Delaware on or about March 3, 1981, which owns one or more office buildings in in St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands for five years prior to the passage of this act. In repealing one loophole, Congress had created another. Jim says reporters today are lucky to have technology to assist in searching through hundreds of pages of documents. A simple command can narrow your search to the right page in seconds. But regardless of technology, Jim says reporting is all about persistence and flexibility. The heart of reporting is, yes, you keep your eye on the ball. You want to get to the bottom of whatever you're looking at. But at the same token, you need to be flexible because not everything is always as it seems. And what you're finding may be different than what you thought you were going to find, but it may be equally as great or even greater. So it's this funny line where you have to stay flexible, but at the same token, don't give up too easily if if obstacles are thrown in your path. Another story idea tip from Jim, look for the lobbyists, but not the ones in the halls of Congress. Uh, I think the average person associates Washington with lobbying, you know, who you lobby, your congressman or your senator, but you know, most of the lobbying doesn't go on at that level. It's at the agencies. And I'll give an example of this. Um, let's look at um, prescription drugs. Most countries around the world don't allow advertising of prescription drugs. The U.S. used to be that way, but the FDA changed that regulation in 1997. It was very often portrayed as a, as a plus that now consumers would get this information, supposedly, and they could make their choice. But one of the most momentous changes in the last 20 years, prescription drug costs are one of the great drivers of health care increases. So this happened in a regulatory agency. It wasn't Congress doing that. So wherever you are, think of, think of some of those agencies and, and the kind of impact they may be having in, in the world around you. 
subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org slash podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Kelly Knoyer co-produced this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Abby Avrigania. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that over. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.